Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name is Wendy, and I'm joined by my psychic and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Hello, Wendy. And our tactics guy, and more importantly, your tactics guy, <laughs> Nathan A. Clark. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Wendy. We start off this podcast uh, with a message for Serge Aurier. We all heard the very sad news that broke this morning about Serge's brother passing away. Um, I say passing away. The reports say that his brother was shot. He was murdered. Um, and obviously this was very distressing news to, to hear. I, I can't even imagine, I can't even begin to imagine what Serge and his family are going through, but we just like to send our sincerest condolences to him and, and hope that somehow they, they managed to pull through this awful situation. I mean, it's been a terrible period for everyone, but not least the, the black community with, you know, that community being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, but then also the kind of the murder of a, of a black man in America and the impact that that's had on, on the black community here as well. And it's just, it's just shocking, absolutely shocking that he's having to go through this and I'm so sorry to Serge and yeah, sending love and uh, best wishes his way. Um, moving on to happy things, we beat Arsenal. How, how awesome did it feel to beat Arsenal, buddy? It's been it's been a long time since football has made me truly happy, and I think in well, I think since twenty nineteen has been maybe the Man City and Ajax games, and maybe beating City at home gave me some joy, but I haven't felt sheer elation like that for a long, long time, and it it was a wonderful feeling, and it it righted a lot of wrongs in Tottenham Hotspur. I think I think we're going to be okay now. We've beaten Arsenal. We're going to be all right. <laughs> you feel that this is the start of a beautiful future. Yeah, we turned the corner. Um, we turned the corner. You know, like you know, you're you're driving. You got to take a corner fast, but you have to get it fast. You got to slow it right down. I think Bournemouth was slowing us down. We've now hit the apex, swung the car around. We'll be everything's going to be okay from now on. But I didn't. I never had you down as a happy clapper, buddy. I, I refuse to be labelled a happy clapper, but I I just can't. <laughs> I can't take negativity anymore. I need to. I need to find some positivity in everything, and I refuse just to let. It, I'm. I'm not going to let any negativity, anything that you two say, <laughs> bring me down from where I am right now regarding our performance yesterday. No, you, very no, happy. you, you, you're quite right. You're quite right, and I agree. I fully agree that we need to embrace any positivity we can get. And that this was obviously um, a huge, huge blast of positivity that we all needed. Um, beating our arch rivals, it's uh, yeah, a, a wonderful thing. Um, Nathan, I'm interested to get your thoughts thoughts first about a North London derby without fans it was weird man uh, it yeah was so wasn't weird it because like, like it, it's 
it's always such an incredible, incredible event. It's, there's always so much energy about the fixture. And for like, I mean, <laughs> you know, fair play to Lacazette scored an incredible goal. To that be just be followed by sort of an odd silence and a coach shouting a couple of words and, you know, all of, and then obviously our late winner, it just, it was strange. It, it feels, it, I, I, maybe it's different for those who, who are listening with crowd volume in and maybe that's where I'm making the mistake, but it just, it feels so alien. Um, yeah, really, really weird. Um, and a, sh- and a shame, obviously, in, in that sense that, that, you know, Spurs fans weren't there to enjoy that in person. Yeah. I mean, the first North London derby at the new stadium, we get, like you say, uh, a come from behind late winner. That's something to savor. And it's such a pity that the fans weren't there to enjoy it. And um, Buddy, do you think the, the lack of fans had an impact on the match at all? No, I, I think fair credit to the players. They played with the intensity and, you know, they were arguing. It was niggly and it it, it seemed to be everything like a, a North London derby is on, on the pitch. So you can see the players were taking it very seriously. But yeah, I completely agree with Nathan. There was no kind of like you could you can imagine had you been at the stadium that first 15 20 minutes of the, of the second half the fans would have been feeling the nerves and feeling the feeling yeah. the pressure but yeah and, and that would have had a that would have had a huge impact but then as spurs turned it around you can just imagine being there and the crescendo building building because you could sense something might happen mm. and then Alderweireld's goal would have just been the stadium would have lost their mind and then and then, as we do with Spurs, everybody would have lost their mind. And then as the chances started creeping our way and we weren't taking them, then the anxiety would have come in and then back again to the crescendo of the final whistle. So it is weird watching this. And I, I used one of my Now TV passes and I didn't have the sound. And it did definitely take away from the spectacle not having the, not, not having the crowd there. Mm. I actually disagree a little bit about the intensity of the game, but I think we can we can probably come back to that when we kind of talk about some how how the game panned out tactically. But uh, Nathan, first and foremost, what did you think of the the choice of formation four four two against Arsenal's three four three? Um, the obvious uh, the obvious uh, point to note from that is you've got a midfield which is roughly matched up four v four, but you have differences at either end of the pitch. What do you think of that battle? That's really interesting. Um, I do think like. Uh, wingers versus fullbacks is sort of the focus there, both in um, offense and defense. That you're you're tracking their runs with with Lucas and Sissoko, but also when we attacked, um, we attacked in like a um, a seventies Brazil two, uh, sorry, a, a, yeah two four four. So our wingers pushed up mm. really aggressive into the offensive line to flatten out Arsenal's back five. And then leave them a little, little stuck, little hollow in midfield with room to play there. Um, so it's, it seemed to me like Mourinho knew that Arsenal were going to line up with a 3-4-3 and was prepared for that and, and came with specific tools in mind for handling the 3-4-3. And yeah, it worked. So Mourinho made a couple of interesting comments. Uh, he said, with Sonny close to Harry, I felt that we could have both one coming more for the ball and being more of target man and the other making the runs and attacking mm. the space. I, I found that interesting and also notable that we did play, from my perspective, quite a number of long balls forward towards Kane, which he competed well for, and also towards Lucas, which I thought he competed well for. And we were very quick to the second balls, which weren't necessarily yeah. behind Kane and Lucas. There weren't many flick-ons and runs behind, but there was lots of sort of chaos just in front of that Arsenal defence, and we were very, very sharp on second balls. I, I wondered if that, if that was perhaps something we'd worked on. Um, but he also said, 
I think sometimes we're not objective, always one more touch, sometimes too many people coming for the ball and not attacking spaces. Which I, I think is a, a very valid point about some of our um, attacking limitations definitely. over the past few weeks. And, and I, I think it's good that he's starting to address that. And, and we definitely saw some of that in this game. But, but, but Bardi, what do you think to our um, uh, sort of the way we attacked in this? I mean, I don't think there was there wasn't anything really that smart to it. It was it was punish. It hit Arsenal where they're weak. We we moved Son wide through the middle so he could he could cause issues to Louise and Mustafi. And there was there was a very clear thing from the very first minute of the game of pressure Mustafi Kolasiak and um, force them into errors because it was going to come down to which team could get through this match with the least amount of errors and Arsenal at the moment their their their, their defense is, is even faultier than ours and we were able to come on top of that battle I thought Kane looked really good as the game wore on there were shades of him versus Lovren at Wembley those uh, many years ago and he really did dominate Mustafi and it it yeah, it, there was there was even a touch of kind of like late days Pochettino to it, where you you just kind of bypass midfield, hit Lorente slash Kane, and then work the magic from there. Um, I I thought I thought there was I don't know if this is a thing or I'm just inventing this, but the four four two the midfield seemed to split at some points. Like two would press the other, then the other two yeah. would kind of cover. Um, yeah, it, Winks and Lacelso did that very nicely. So even though it was like you know proper four four two written on the back of a cigarette packet, I think it was a little bit smarter than that in in the actual gameplay. So Nathan, what Barley said there about waiting for Arsenal to make mistakes—that is peak Mourinho pragmatism. Mm. I mean, that is in in these big games against sides that want to play football. He is absolutely brilliant at setting up in a very sort of organised, pragmatic manner, often with a low or medium block. Uh, often kind of drawing the opposition onto you, conceding possession, and then waiting for the, the moments where they make errors and pouncing. And I think we saw a lot of that in this game. I think we saw Bardi again mentioned the pressing. I thought that the front two in Son and Kane pressed more than I've seen a Spurs team press so far under Mourinho. That, that was kind of... Um, relaxed a bit as they passed into our midfield and we retreated and, and kind of just regrouped into position. But the pressing definitely had an impact. It forced errors, uh, which we were able to pounce on. Did, was this like a typical Mourinho performance from your perspective? I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Um, there were definitely some sort of, yeah, more modern twists. The variable pressing from the front too, where, as you say, like a lot of the time they were passive a lot of the time they were deep and then if Arsenal moved the ball backwards they'd chase it down and I think that caught yeah caught them by surprise exactly because um, they weren't expecting <laughs> they were getting used to um, a certain defensive tempo from the Spurs and then mm. and caught off guard when suddenly we were a bit more sort of explosive with it um, yeah it's interesting I think the stuff about the the off-ball movement is really interesting because it's been a huge huge thing recently it's just um, a, a, you know a player on the ball three or four players ahead of them and, and then no one making any movement either to or away from mm. the ball um, not sure whose turn it is to go not sure who the passer will favour and and it looks like Mourinho's due a very specific okay here are two forwards the the ball near forward is going to drop deep when you see yep. the other forward drop deep you run in behind and it's just it's a it's a pre-planned organization it's interesting i saw quite a few tweets that are like harry kane played well in this game because he got to play as the number nine and i saw quite a few tweets that are, harry kane played well in this game because he got to play as the number of 10 and, and in both mm. cases saying which is his true position but it's like <laughs> it's 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 that organization where yeah we we saw some nice passing some nice 
nice combination game from him, and we also saw him get in behind a couple of times as well. Um, because yeah, because the the there was instruction on when to be which basically, and um, I think that was really interesting. So I thought Harry Kane played well in this game because he regularly drifted out to the left, which is <laughs> where he's been excellent in the past, where he can, like Bardi said, isolate a defender and make him look foolish. And I really, I really liked that. I really liked that about his uh, his game. I thought he he did a very good job out there. One thing I will disagree with Mourinho on uh, is I didn't see that many players attacking spaces in behind, like. Our, our wingers generally started from a deep position and got on the ball and either showed for it and played into midfield or looked forward and Lucas played two, you know, I shit on Lucas on a, on a weekly basis on here, but he played two fantastic yep. passes for Kane. Really, really impressive. I was very, I was very pleased to see that sort of level of creativity from Lucas on the left. Um, but I didn't see him running behind all that much. Buddy, I interrupted I interrupt you. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say there was even a little bit more to waiting for mistakes. I was going to mention the two Lucas opportunities which he created for Kane, which 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 showed more than just waiting for Arsenal to pass it to us. They were the first one was a lovely little chip through, and the the second one was a lovely kind of slide rule pass through to Kane. Um, I thought Martinez. I thought he kept it respectable in the end. Um, he's good, I, isn't he? I'm, I'm, I've been surprised at how good he's been. When, because um, Leno is, you know, he he has his faults, but he's he's a pretty good goalkeeper. So when he went down, I thought Arsenal would struggle, but I think Martinez has been has been excellent since he's came in. I haven't seen him have a, a bad moment yet for Arsenal. Mm. Yeah, same. I agree. Um, Nathan, I thought this was Lucas's best performance for a long, long time. Uh, I want to say since Ajax, I can't remember anything better since then. I could be wrong on that. My memory's not the best. Um, but he. He made a number of tackles. He worked really hard. There, there were some definite sort of poor moments of decision making where he could have passed and chose not to. I don't think you're ever going to wipe that out of Lucas's game. And to be honest, I don't think this changes anything for me in terms of Lucas. I still don't think he, long term he's good enough for Spurs. But it's good to know he can put in a shift like that every now and again and, and be useful, particularly from the left. What did you think, Nate? Yeah, definitely it's interesting to see how much playing as a an outside winger on the left might instruct him um his his performance is down the line um he ma- he made 10 of 13 tackles which is an absolutely absurd yeah. number of defensive actions for like even like a, a good really good defensive midfielder whose primary role is to put in tackles puts in five six maybe seven yeah. tackles in a game <laughs> to to put in 10 as a winger is is absolutely absurd um and then yeah i mean he still had his moments there was there was this one cutback opportunity which absolutely yeah. drove me up the wall because it was just it was it was <laughs> it was right there it felt like 10 minutes past where there was a player Oford on the penalty spot and he just ran into um Mustafi but um but yeah like you said two excellent balls constant threat down the left um took players on uh, made himself an option and then his defensive work was outstanding that clearly is what although I say that but it's like if that's what Mourinho does see in Lucas then why does he keep playing him in more central positions where he mm. um, so I don't know it'd be interesting it'd be interesting to see that. I again like you despite that very good performance um, he's not a first 11 player for me um, I don't know if he's putting in performances like that <laughs> regularly or maybe he is. Well, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, if if Lucas puts together five or six performances like that, I would be very, very happy to see him regularly start on the left. Mm. 
The problem is he's not done that at Spurs. He's he's uh, he's. I don't think he's ever put in two consecutively no. really good performances. <laughs> to be quite honest, it's more like one in ten. Sure. Uh, so so we yeah, it might be another ten games before we see that again. But I would love it if he could put back to back performances together and just keep going like that because it would be really great to get more out of him as a player. And you know, the defensive shift is is one thing, and that's wonderful. But those two passes showed me something that I've not seen yeah. in Lucas before. I, I really liked I really liked both of those, the vision. Um, on the other side, Sissoko was playing a very sort of... Well, we've seen him play that kind of role before where he covers the right back and and plays a sort of more self-sacrificing role where he's, he's not getting forward too much. Uh, the one moment where he did get in the box, he had that really unfortunate touch where it kind of... It, it did come at him awkwardly and quickly, but he, it was classic Sissoko where it just bounced off him, where, you know, if you've got if you've got a Celso taking that in the box, there's going to be a feathery light touch mm-hmm. followed by a finish. Uh, and he just didn't want Sissoko on the end. But he did a really good job, Bardi, I thought, of um, of protecting us down that side. Yeah, a bit like Lucas, it, the formation suited their, suited their strengths, willingness to run around and work for the team. So it did suit him. Once There were a few times on a counter-attack where both Lucas and Sissoko could have been a bit sharper with and a bit smarter with their passing, but you're never going to get that. I agree with um, the kind of consensus that perhaps Lucas does have a future as a, as a squad player, as a, as a tactical kind of um, pawn to use. And... Sissoko, Sissoko, I don't think Sissoko ever gets over like a six or a seven in terms of rating, but then very rarely gets under that either. He kind of does what Sissoko does and he ends up invariably in the right back role helping out Oreo or Trippier before him. He does like to caretaker. He does like to mm. look like, be a caretaker for a right back. Mm. Yeah, he's he's definitely better when he's given a very specific set of instructions to follow and he really does follow them to the letter. Like you you don't get many players who are able to fulfill instructions in the same way that Sissoko can. Uh it's just that yeah, he, he needs to not have any kind of creative element to his game to, to get the best out of him, I think. Mm. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on, Bardi, was you were obviously waxing lyrical about Kane's performance, and I agree. I thought he kind of did roll back the ears a little bit in that in that performance. Do you have concerns about the fact that he's played every minute of every game so far? Um, no, no, I, I, no. Part of me thinks we should be scared, but I think he's. I think he. Uh, I, no, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say no. He's not running around as much as he used to. He needs minutes more than anything else. He's still not looking as kind of trim as he usually as he as he does when he's at peak fitness. And I, I think I think it's important for him to keep getting minutes and keep working. I wouldn't. I wouldn't like. I wouldn't think. I don't think we should go into a season where he has to play fifty games back to back like that. But I think over this period, it's okay. And it's it's just like um, going up a mountain in marathon training. He he needs to get the kilometers in his legs. And Nathan, finally, um, you know, it wasn't wasn't um, a classic Spurs performance, uh, but we more than got the job done, and we we could have won more handsomely. The the goals in the end came from a defensive lapse from Arsenal, which we took full advantage of through Son's lovely sort of clipped finish, and then a set piece, uh, which is very unlike Spurs, but mm. very nice to see Alderweireld, you know, meet what was an excellent corner from Son, nice flat corner into a into a sort of semi central area, and it's, they they look very soft when they go in like that, but there's a lot of work that goes into it. But Nate, what what did you think generally about the performance and does it give you kind of much hope for the future in terms of our attacking play? Um okay, let me let me be uh let me be radically honest here. We were due to record yesterday and I said let's not record because I was I was feeling pretty down about the game uh and I didn't want to like drag the mood down. Um 
I think I had a very strange reaction to the game, which is not reflective at all of, of the, the performance. I was having a bad day, to be fair, and I was feeling really down about Spurs for obviously a while now. And then I was feeling bad during the game. And then when we scored the winner, it just, I don't know, it just didn't hit me like it should have done at all. So I was, I, I, I find it very hard to understand how I felt so down about winning the North London derby. So I'm having a hard time sort of looking at this game objectively at all. We we definitely did create the better chances. Um, in terms of going forward, it would be really interesting whether this 4-4-2 was just a specific thing for this game or whether it's something that Mourinho wants us to explore uh, more. Um, or maybe this becomes sort of the way we play when we play on the break and maybe not how we set up when we're going to have the ball more. Um, mm. I don't know. It's an interesting one. The one positive to take from the way we attacked is our attack wasn't push it wide to Aurier. So there was a there was a, this, there was a proper change there. And I think... There was still I, a bit of that though. Well, it's just because Aurier is always open and it, it's, it's yep. insane. that It's like nobody picks him up and it's almost like habit. He's so free, given the ball. Um but I, I still think there's work to be done. There was a couple of occasions where it's ridiculous now to talk about it, but I think it, I think it needs to be said. Where Tottenham just needs to square the ball. The amount of goals Manchester City scored within the six-yard box because their forwards pulled the ball back and Sun did it and Kane did it, just pulled the ball back and let's let's share the goals around and it, w- it would have made life a lot easier. We could have won that game 4-1 in the end. So I, I think there is work to do there. I think players, when they're left to their own kind of attacking devices to do what they do, it's fine if you're if you're playing, if it's Hazard or it's Ronaldo or somebody like that. But when it's um, when it's Lucas and Kane, sometimes it's like let's have let's have a little bit of a system. So I think there's still a lot of work to do with our forward players, but I think a lot of that does stem from the lack of creativity in the midfield and everything else. So um, I, this was definitely Mourinho picking a team to win the match, and I'm happy for that. I'm happy to win this game. I'm delighted to win this game. But yeah, it's still not the plan for the future. Definitely. I 100% agree with your point there that um, the, the the result of the reason we don't square the ball is because we're leaving the players to their own devices. Yeah. There needs to be some serious yeah. coaching into how we manage chances in the box. Serious coaching. That's that's like one of my biggest criticisms of Mourinho so far. So far is that there doesn't seem to be any kind of attacking structure in the box. Like under Pochettino, what you would find is you'd have very structured runs. One would go to the near post, one would drop to the edge of the six-yard box, and a player would cut the ball back. Often Kyle Walker would would cut the ball back into a dangerous area for Kane or Son or, whoever, or Delhi or whoever to arrive at the right moment. And I'm not getting that at the moment. There's um, Mourinho set us up with quite a bit of attacking freedom, I think. He doesn't commit many players forward, but the players who are committed forward are, like Bardi said, allowed to essentially do what they want to do. They're kind of allowed to use their own creativity and I don't think that's working at the moment but it's early days in that respect so so we'll see how that goes um obviously this is awesome we beat Arsenal uh Arsenal fan TV was utterly pathetic and that made me happy we need to talk about Bournemouth though as well um, I, 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 uh, I, I, I want to say <laughs> yeah I want to say one more I want to say one more thing about Arsenal that I think I think Arteta he he came into this Arteta I I admire what he tries to do and what he's trying to do I I, I admire that. But I think he was taught a lesson by Mourinho that perhaps he should have he should have done what Spurs did. He should have allowed Spurs to come on. We as we get into this with Bournemouth, sometimes if you just let Tottenham have the ball, they don't do anything with it, and then they had the pace and the ability to 
possibly hit us on the counter-attack. So I think I think a lot of this does come down to Arteta being schooled a little bit by Mourinho. And Mourinho's, he's always said that if, you, if, you, if I don't have the ball, we can't make a mistake. And Arsenal had a lot of the ball and they continued to make mistakes. So I think, I think Arteta will probably learn from this in the long run. But um, yeah, I think moving on to Bournemouth, had he just let Tottenham have the ball in front of them for 90 minutes, we probably wouldn't have done much. Hmm. You're right, Bardi, and I felt like it was the Arsenal match was a role reversal of what we saw a couple of times under Pochettino, where you know we felt like we were the better team because we dominated the ball and we we moved it about better, but Arsenal just stuck in there and, and ground out a draw, or, or I think they won a couple of them, didn't they? But hmm. um, yeah, this felt like a, a proper role reversal. We were the we we ceded possession and caught them on the counter and uh, yeah, schooled them a little bit. Um, Bournemouth feels like a long time ago, but we we need to address it. It was pretty horrendous. Um, we should have had a penalty. So let's start with that. The, the, the push from Joshua King on Harry Kane from behind somehow didn't meet the VAR uh, level of clear and obvious error at the time. After the match, uh, it was decreed that that was a mistake and we should have had a penalty. Nathan, you've long said that Mourinho is a coach that needs to manipulate the score and then shut the game down. Do you think if we'd got that penalty and scored it, we'd have won that game? Probably, yeah. Probably. I think, yeah, once once we're ahead, um, we really make you suffer for it. Uh, I... <laughs> Despite the fact that it's now an official case that it should have been a penalty, I didn't see it as like an absolute certainty. I think he, like at least to some degree, he he trips over. Is it Davies who stood there? Um, I don't know. Whatever. That's that's just a throwaway comment. That like I <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting that, that there's a case where they were like officially come out and say we got it wrong, and even then I'm like, oh okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I think you, I think to be fair, you are pretty much on your own on that. Maybe. Okay, sweet. I, 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 I think <laughs> like most Spurs fans would say, obviously uh, that it was, it was a penalty to Spurs. Like it felt to me like that was a clear cut. I just, I don't, I've not, I've not, I've not gauged the opinion of other football fans, but I don't think many were surprised when it came out that it was an error. No, no, no. I, I, I haven't seen anyone else. Like I haven't even seen like Bournemouth fans saying that's their opinion. I'm just weird. <laughs> I just feel like there are pushes like that at every corner that aren't even discussed, but. Sure. No, that's a fair point. That is a very fair point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's Harry Kane, isn't it? And he and he throws himself down. So, <laughs> uh, so in this game, we played a four-three-three. We played Harry Winks at the base of the midfield three. Spurgvine and Lacelso were hauled off at half-time, uh, and Ndombele came on. Yeah, Barney, what did you make of Ndombele? He he did, he did okay. He was. I don't think, as Mourinho said, I don't think he was any better or any worse than anyone else out there. What? Um, You're going to back Mourinho yeah, on that? I don't think... I mean, look, look we, we just spent five minutes talking about how Mourinho gives players the creative license to do kind of whatever they want on, on a pitch. And I just think all our players were unable to, to muster the creative ability to take a shot at goal. And I think Mourinho does, deserves to be criticised as well. But if, if players are given attacking licence to, to do whatever they think will work and they're unable to do it, then they've also got to take some of the fault as well. I, I think Ndombele was, was hampered by the amount of stoppages, which were ridiculous in that match. Uh, but mm, mm. He, he, was, he was fine. That's it. He was fine. I don't think... I didn't see anything for him, which is like, oh my, oh my days, this is what we're missing. Um, yeah, so that's, that's where I stand with that performance from him. Okay, so my theory is that the reason that Nathan felt so down uh, about the <laughs> Arsenal match 
is because Ndombele came on at halftime against Bournemouth and immediately Spurs like literally went up a notch as a team. Definitely. And he he was great and he looked really exciting. And then Mourinho post-match made that comment that Bardi's just referenced <laughs> saying that he was no better or worse than others. And for me, I found that like... Maybe it's confirmation bias, but I found that really, really sad. And it made me think he's definitely going. He's like, there's no way this guy's staying at Spurs. Uh, and it, and that upset me. And I suspect that's probably what upset Nathan as well. And then he wasn't involved against Arsenal. He didn't come on. Skip came on. Any truth in that, Nathan? <laughs> Maybe. I, 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 I thought he was pretty good when he came on. I thought he set us off on several counterattacks. Uh, which we failed to score from or even create decent chances from, obviously. But um, mm. I don't know. He, he also looked sort of a bit awkward, a bit lethargic, as you would expect. He's not played for six months, no, ex- has he? Exactly. Um, he didn't, like, he didn't blow us all away. He wasn't incredible, but I thought he gave us some, like, some dynamism that we were sorely lacking in that game. Uh, the tactical change is really interesting. So we, we changed a winger on the left out for a winger on the left and we changed our most creative midfielder out for our most creative midfielder on the bench. It was it was just, it wasn't a tactical change, it was just two different players. Okay, you have a go at it. Um which is odd. Um I I, I yeah, he wasn't incredible. He wasn't at his absolute best again as you would expect. Uh, I do think that he stood out in the game. I do think he was better than his teammates. I wasn't expecting him to start in North London Derby or particularly no, no. expecting him to come off the bench. I'm more hopeful for the next couple of games. Um, yeah, and, and you're right that it was very much like for like with the substitutions, which which also made me feel a bit sad about Bergwijn as well, to be honest, because I, I thought Bergwijn was probably our best creative definitely. player in the first half. Not, like, mm. not that there was much to get excited about, because there really, really wasn't. But I thought he was absolutely fine, and I was a bit sad that he was the one taken off. Lacelso got injured, right? He he got a whack on the ankle early on. Oh, was that it? it for, for the whole uh, of the half. Yeah, to, I mean, to the to the point where I was expecting him to perhaps miss out against Arsenal with it. But um, so that kind of explains that one away. He had no choice but to bring a top play on. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't know. Oh, um. You had previously uh, pushed for a Winksler Celso midfield, which we've now seen as a yeah. two. How, how did you feel about that midfield against Arsenal? Uh, I liked it very much. Okay. Um, so I, I I thought Arsenal, kind of like Bardi said, they, they played some really good stuff, but in areas where we kind of had them arm's length. Um, and I would want to see them again. Like, I'd want to see Winks and Sissoko against a, a team that creates a little bit more in, in the final third and, and kind of puts us to the sword more before I can judge fully. But in ter- I thought in terms of the quality on the ball, it was certainly our best passing performance Definitely. under Mourinho. The fluidity was better. You know, the thing about Winks, people say he slows us down. I mean, I absolutely think the opposite. Yeah. I think he speeds us up because he, he, he does take one or two touches on the ball sometimes. But he also gets the ball under control really quickly, like way quicker than others uh, in the team do. Gets out of his feet quickly. He assesses options. And sometimes he'll like, turn back and, and pass it back out to the fullback or whatever. And yeah, sure, like I appreciate that slows the game down a bit. But he's, when he does pass it forward or pass it to an angle... What he's sometimes doing is opening up angles for other players to then play a killer pass. And I don't think we have any others that can do that in midfield. Maybe Lasso if he's playing the deeper role, but you kind of want him to be the one playing the killer pass. So Winks and Lasso for me, worked quite nicely. It was tempered by the fact that you had these two kind of defensive yeah. wingers. So I don't know. I don't know. I- 
maybe it needs that. I, yeah, that's exactly. I, I, I'm interested in the midfield. I do want to see more of it. Um, I do like the way they move the ball, obviously, as a pair. But, like, I I wonder if they need, like, yeah, wingers putting in 10 tackles either side of them to make it work. Mm-hmm. And then how that might limit us, uh, you know, in as a possession team. But um, I know I, I, I'm undecided on that one, definitely, for now. I I really want to see Winks, Lacelso, and Ndombele play together. That's the uh, that'd yeah, be good. That's what I'm look, that's what I'm looking towards. Um, anything else, Bardi, that you want to say about that Bournemouth match, or do we just banish it from our memories forever? <laughs> uh, good solid clean sheet at a ground where Leicester conceded four goals. Maybe that's that point, take. that put a good point at the end. Of it. it could be, could end up being a good point <laughs> in the battle for eighth. Yeah, in the battle for eighth. Um, there's not really much to say about it. It was interesting that he put Vertonghen in alongside Alderweireld and then swapped Sanchez back for the North London derby, who I thought played pretty mm. good. I thought he, they, I thought he looked pretty decent. Um, yeah, nothing really else to say about Bournemouth. It's good to have Toby back. It's really good to have Toby back. Mm. interesting is we've got a couple of questions here that uh we received post bournemouth pre-arsenal and i think it tells you quite a lot about the the mood of the (laughs) the fan base uh post bournemouth so from uh lee who is rage quit lee on twitter he says do you think jose will survive regardless of results due to being shielded from a most likely toxic atmosphere which is escalating amongst the fans and would have been vocal had the fans been present in stadiums in recent and upcoming games and i think this is a really interesting point that the, the the pressure of fans kind of booing or groaning or as they tend to do at Spurs, uh, that's non-existent in the stadium. So, you know, Levy in, in some sense isn't getting kind of direct feedback from the stands. Uh, Nathan, yeah. do you think that would make any difference Definitely. to Levy's Well, maybe yeah. not so much. I feel like Levy is very cold-headed in, with these decisions. I don't think he... I think there are a lot of chairmen up and down the country who will, you know be swayed by the mood of the fans. I think Levy less so is the case, but I do think it would change the mood of the club. I like uh, we've been in much better much better circumstances than this and there have been fans, you know, half empty stadiums yeah. 80 minutes. Uh people just screaming abuse at the director's box. Um signs calling for the manager to go, all of that kind of stuff and we would be having that now. <laughs> um, yeah. If yeah. fans are allowed in the stadium. So I do think that that is doing Mourinho some good. Um, I also think that he's going to escape um, uh, because he's going to win the North London derby. So that will help him a lot. <laughs> I was going to say that next. Bardi, do you think the fact that he, he won this game against Arsenal now buys him a lot more time than he might have otherwise had? Yeah, I think so. There was um, um, Enzo Ferrari before he died. He okay. says it doesn't matter what... <laughs> He says it doesn't matter what Ferrari do the whole season, as long as they win at Monza 
And it's that kind of thing that it doesn't Spurs can get away with quite a lot of stuff as long as they beat Arsenal. Had we had we lost to Arsenal, I think I think the the pressure might have been building, but I still I still don't think there would have been that kind of protests at at Spurs. Yeah, I don't think we're quite there yet. Even though people are are unhappy, I think I think the majority will give Spurs uh, until at least ten games into next season to um, before they really start losing their minds. The distance mm. you are now travelling to find Italian references. <laughs> it's truly incredible. Different but sports. It, uh, if, if it, you could even call F1 a sport. But it's true, no? Like, if, if you're not going to win, we're not going to win anything, win the North London derby, and at least at least the fans have you're that. Right. I mean... It's I was I was funny. driving around I was driving around before the game and I had one of those old moments where I was just like I remember like North London derby days back when I was young and it would be the streets would be like a wash with like Tottenham yeah. shirts and Arsenal shirts and now it's it's just not like that but I did find well, I did find one Arsenal fan on my way home and I'd had a few beers watching the game <laughs> with my dad but my wife was driving I I was kind of had some Spurs songs playing. As we drove down the road, there was an Arsenal fan walking back up and out of nowhere just decided to go, ah, <laughs> point at him out the window. And he looked into my eyes and I looked into his eyes and it was it was such a brilliant feeling. I mean, I'm, I'm nearly 40 years old. I'm acting like a child, but that's that's kind of what the North London brilliant. derby means. And it should, it should be like that. It was it was a great moment. And I, I woke up this morning still thinking about that guy. And I'm still <laughs> thinking about him now because I'm talking about it. And I hope, I hope he's still thinking about me now. And I hope he realises that he's a bit of a mug and that we <laughs> and we won the North London derby. And that's all that really matters when you're not going to win anything else. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of Spurs fans are missing out on that experience of, you know, yelling out of the car window and a uh, passing Arsenal <laughs> fan at the moment. So, I, th- thank you for for simulating the experience for us. <laughs> Nathan, here's one for you. Uh, Mark Bennett, eighty one, says: Is the lack of offensive coaching at fault for players not passing to teammates or putting in identifiable effort? This squad is dead. There's only a handful worth keeping and massive holes in crucial positions. Poch had the same problems and was right about a painful rebuild. Um, Yes, there are issues with the squad, um, but those issues aren't our attacking players or... Uh, the the area of the pitch where we have the least problems is in our sort of attacking fours, attacking threes, um, and that is where up until the North London derby, or in, which is coming up next, I don't know how am I answering this question? Um, it, you know, there's been just no no instruction. You know, we we've done it we, between La Celso and Ndombele against Bournemouth um, against Everton. You know, do a decent job of getting the ball into the final third. And then just a stagnance because there's no there's no pre there was no pre planning there's mm. no mm. knowledge of who the passer is going to prefer and if you make that run and then suddenly you're offside and then the passer plays the ball afterwards you regret making the run there's no positive rewards there's no you're 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 waiting as an attacker for a certainty rather than taking risks and gambling and part of that is because it might be a while before we have another chance because of our our lack of pressing and a lack of dominating of possession. Um, but mostly, yeah, there's an organisational um, issue, and and I guess also um, a sort of uh, an intuitive harmony. You know, keep changing the players round. They're not playing winning football, so they're not 
developing that that non-verbal communication um and understanding of each other uh especially like if you know the ball that lacelso plays when he cuts in from the right that's not necessarily that helpful when lacelso is in the ball and this time he's in the left channel because you, he's mm. going to make different decisions there so all, all of the chopping and changing which i do think has been absolutely necessary also has its downsides in that regard and that obviously that predates Mourinho, of course um you know that's that's two years now, basically. Um, so it's difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, as we saw against Arsenal, a little bit of coaching in that direction has already gone a long way. That's going to be a bigger ask when we have more of the ball. Um, but it's just ideas like that and drilling ideas like that and, and, and yeah, preparing your attacks. It's pretty good. Mm. Buddy, one for you. Uh, this is from Alec Deprinsky, and he's asking about Delhi and Delhi's best position. He says, "What is Delhi's best position? If it's the free roam second striker role that I believe it is, is there even room for a role like that in the Mourinho system?" Now that is interesting in light of yesterday's formation because Delhi would fit in quite nicely. But what do you think, Buds? Yeah, I, I, I saw that question on the list, and I've been racking my brains to try and think of some evidence of Mourinho's past where he's allowed a player to be like that and other than yesterday no I, I I don't see where I don't see where he fits in but then if you're going to play Delhi then you're taking out Sun and Sun is you know Sun is one of our arguably our best players so um I'm not sure I'm not sure what happens to Delhi right now the the injury is unfortunate for him but it's it's kind of it kind of also lucky that it's taken him out and protected him a little bit from from our bad playing because he is quite often singled out by the fans and by the media so it is protecting him from from criticism but I'm I'm unsure where he fits um I still have my doubts about him being able to play in a midfield three and from what we've seen in in Lucas and Sissoko wide and Bergvine also works hard I'm not sure whether he's he's suited for that role either so yeah I think it's quite um it's quite a concerning time for Delhi I don't know. I I feel like there's I think like there's three positions that Delhi could have fit in in yesterday's formation, the four four two. I feel that he could do a job on the left if necessary. He's he's quite tactically disciplined. He's played in midfield before, so he 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 knows how to kind of cover ground and um, and make t- tackles and interceptions. But he could also play up with either Kane or Son, and that would help with Kane getting a bit of a break every now and again. Uh, but we know he's got good interplay with Kane and they play well together. I'm not, I think Delhi and Son will be a weaker pairing, but Delhi and Kane, I feel like there's something there. Yeah, but then that, that means Son is rested, so that means... Or that on the left. Uh, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what Nathan thinks, but I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think 442 is something we're going to see as continue with, but I'm not sure. I'd, Agreed, I'd, yeah. I'm not sure Delhi would... Delhi wouldn't have had the same impact on the game in terms of what Lucas did, if you see what I mean. I don't think I don't think Delhi could have played that role that Lucas did, which ended up being so crucial to Tottenham. What do you think, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, there's there's playing as like the left midfielder in a four four two, where you're up and down the line, putting in your tackles, um, playing crosses, and then there's like the left winger in a four three three who maybe plays inside and is in the left channel and links things there and darts in between the fullback and the centre back and that kind of stuff. So from the left, obviously, he has very different connotations. He's not going to play, or it yeah. definitely doesn't suit him to play on the left of the, Lucas's role as we saw at the weekend. Uh, in that formation, you might want to see him up front. Um, if we're talking about issues with off-ball movement in the squads and you're looking for individuals to improve that rather than organisation, then Delhi is your man. Obviously, um, 
he's not been having a good time of it for years mm. now as well. Mm. But um, mm. that is his his biggest skill. It's his off the ball movement. Um, in terms of like having a best position, a best role, like I don't really believe in that. I think that whatever serves the team best is what is best. And sometimes maybe that's going to be remaining on the bench. Um, uh, you know, depending on which other players are playing well, who we're playing against, all that kind of stuff. Um, I like him playing as an aggressive number 10, um, doing a lot of the running in behind, occasionally linking the play. But I think he can definitely perform well for us if we need him to, if we're asking him to perform as a number eight or off the left or something else. Mm. That's that's really interesting. Mm. Uh, Bardi, you just mentioned that you don't think the 442 is going to continue. We've got a question here from Owen Malarkey, or as I call him, the Tommy Tiernan of Telegram. Uh, he says, could you ask Nathan if he could break down the reason for the re-emergence of the 433 in recent times? Is it because it gives the tactical advantage if you're looking to press high and win it early, or is it to control the midfield? But did you think the 433 is uh, what Mourinho is moving towards and what we'll see in most games going forward now? I have no idea what his what his plan is. I think a lot of it would depend on personnel and the team, the squad that is assembled um, in the summer in the in the break between the seasons. I don't I don't even know how long that break is. Um, I think a lot would depend on on who who we sign. So I, I'm not sure. I can't I can't really answer. I can't really predict what Mourinho is going to do. Mm. And Nathan, what do you think about the four three three? Is that mm. the numerical advantage, superiority in in key areas from a pragmatic point of view, or is it for another reason? I think it's a difficult shape to press high in a lot of the time. I think um, you you want. Um, hmm. It depends how you set up the midfield sure, three, doesn't that's, it? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm assuming most of the time you're going to have a V-shaped midfield where your your number six is sitting deeper, and you've got two number eights pushed to the left and to the right a little higher up. Mm. Um, I, I think I think it's it's very easy to get pressing high in a four-three-three wrong. Um, yeah. Obviously, there are, are counterexamples. Obviously, um, Liverpool, though they're sli- they're slightly different with how they press, but sure, whatever. Take that they take that as a given, and then um, you can argue City plays something of a four-three-three. For me, it's more of a four-one-four-one. I do think that difference mm. matters. Um, think it's more about control of the midfield. It's more about getting that number six in um, to deal with being pressed rather than to do the pressing yourself. Um, but I'm also I'm not not convinced. I accept that it's a reemergence. I think it has not gone away, and I don't think it's come back to the extent that it's been a dramatic increase recently. Um, is that specifically about us, or do you think he's asking more generally in world football? I think it was specifically about our... Okay. Uh, hmm. I think that it... Yeah, it's more about our build-up play than it is about our pressing. And I think that, as we disagreed with the other match, was it Everton, where we started in a 4-3-3 and then we moved to a 4-2-3-1. I think we started in a 4-3-3 for possession reasons. And I suspect that we moved to the 4-2-3-1 for defensive reasons. Yeah, I think think the 4-3-3, if you can manipulate the ball and control the ball like... Barcelona does or um, who I'm trying to think trying to wrap my brain to someone else or like let's just use Barcelona even though I hate to use them as an, ex- an example because they're a team that has Messi and Busquets and then they had Xavi and Iniesta and you know they are exceptional human beings which make it could make any system work I think if you play a 4-3-3 and you're unable to control the ball you leave yourself wide open which is what we've seen sometimes with us um 
I don't think it's been a re-emergence in the way like you would say the back three came back and that was really kind of fashionable for a couple of seasons. Conte did it, Wenger bloody hell, even Wenger did it and and Pochettino used it to great effect. Um, I like the four three three, but I think I think we need the right players to play it. Mourinho said he used it at Chelsea in the, in his first spell, but a lot of the times in in defence it did end up in, in when they didn't have the ball four five one. But then he had two wingers able to get up quickly to support um, to support Drogba. I think I think I think a lot of it will depend on who we get, whether or not we see that formation come back. The the Huyberg links to Man City are concerning, so I'm not mm. sure. I'm not sure what our intentions are going forward. Okay, next question is from Yusuf Khan. He says, I'm not sure if you'd agree with me or not, but one of the reasons I allowed myself to think Jose might have changed and could deliver us a brand of football which would be closer to exciting than this garbage is his appointment of Sacramento. Apart from reminding Mourinho that Sterling had already been booked, what else has he done? <laughs> uh, which I thought was a very astute observation <laughs> from, from Yusuf. Um, actually, I read something about Sacramento a few days ago. Um, I forget what it was. If I find it, I will tweet the link. But it basically implied that the work that he was doing in his last job was essentially on um, defensive setup yep. and counterattacking, yep. and and nothing more than that. So yep. uh, maybe we kind of allowed ourselves to believe that we had this kind of just because he's young, isn't it? Yep. It's unusual to have <laughs> such a young coach. So you just go, oh, he must be really progressive. Yeah, no, but he, like you said, yeah. He's he's mainly done opposition preparation, defensive work, and then if you look at the games he managed at Lille, he played a lot like Mourinho. I think Mourinho likes him because he sees a young version of himself. And I think there is some modernisation in there. It's like, yeah. what would Mourinho be like if he was coming through now? And, and how would he stay true to his core approach with also the context of modern football sort of thing? But I don't think Sacramento... I, 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 it's impossible to know that much about him, but from what little information is available, he seems like a defensive coach. So, uh, yeah. Definitely not a bad thing to have someone closer to the age of most of our players in terms of communication tactics, I think. That's true. Uh, Javad Movahedi says, do we need a defensive midfielder? Yes. Think Wanyama 1617. <laughs> he says, I think we do. Uh, we, we all agree. He also says... Going forward, is Ben Davies' best position as a left centre-back in the squad? What do you think, Bardi? Ben Davies, the man who whacks him from 35 yards. He's <laughs> gonna be, he's that was gonna, a sweet hit, wasn't it? Oh, he's, tried, he's been trying it a few games. Mm. There, was, um, there was a strike he did away against Everton a couple of years ago, which was a blast, and I think he hit the bar again. And then over the last few weeks, he's been, he's been swinging his old boot at them. And um, <laughs> when, he, when he picked up the ball, I was shouting, don't do it, don't do it. But... Um, Ben Davies is he's a functional player who who's doesn't really do much wrong doesn't really do a lot right but he he remains a, a, an excellent squad option who I who I like and the fact that he could play as a as a left-sided centre back is great I wouldn't want him to start there but um that's good that he's an option and he's he remains a solid fullback who um I think um, when we look back at some of the Pochettino sides, who was, who was actually pretty decent going forward, and he may not have got, he may not have been as stunning to look at as Danny Rose, but I think during that period where we were doing some nice things under Poch, it was most of the time it was um, it was Davies at left back. He's definitely on my list of if we get 
uh, a good offer for him like it wouldn't be the worst thing to sell him but at the same time if he stays it's not the end of the world that's no. that's how i feel about davis he should have he should what ben davis should have been he should have been the reliable rotation option from yep. sessignon we placed sessignon yep. and then in games where we were a little bit unsure about him or stuff then you play davis but then you play sessignon that should have been what happened 100%, but man. that didn't happen that's that's mm-hmm. exactly it that's what i was maybe not right at the start of the season cuz sessignon needed time to bed in but um, I think, you know, in the second half of the season, it should have been Seth and Young taking over and, and Davies retreating back to second choice again. But um, that's not what we I got. mean, even when you say he needs time to bed in, like, he bed in by playing. Uh, yeah, but like, yeah, okay. I mean, like, gets a few games off the bench in an attacking role, gets a couple of starts in an attacking role. Uh, kind of got that. Yeah, no, well, exactly. He was on he, he was on course for that. Yeah, he's, he's scored... <laughs> Um, a big, big Champions League goal. He was on course for for taking over, and then obviously everything collapsed. Uh, change of manager, change of approach, change of the left back role, which is the question, by the way. Uh, so Ben Davies, uh, when he plays centre back for Wales, he often plays on the left of a back three. When he plays full back yeah. for us, he plays a defensive left back, often as part of a back three in position. It's a very similar role, but in mm-hmm. terms of playing centre back in a two, he's he's just too short. He's got everything else, yeah. but he's just. You know he's going to give up two headers in the box a game, and that's just that's just not fruitful, man. That's uh, mm. otherwise absolutely. I, I do think one thing to to think about Ben Davis is if he were right footed and not left footed, like he wouldn't be anywhere near our squad. I really do think that we like him because he's got a left foot, and we don't have many left footed players. I don't know. Maybe I'm being harsh. Who Ben Davis? Sorry. No, I, I I don't think so. I think he I think he's an, an international level player who does find he's you know he's he's not the, he's not he's not the most exciting left back, but I think I think he remains a good player who I who I would wouldn't like to sell probably because I don't often trust Spurs with money to spend and getting them to go out <laughs> by another left back. Um, I was just thinking Sessignon did have a little run of games at the over the Christmas period turn of the year at left back. And I thought, if I remember correctly, I thought he did okay. I was away for those games. I thought he did all right, and there was enough there for that. I thought that he would continue to play, but um, I don't know if he got injured or Mourinho just kind of fell out with him. Uh, next question is from Alison, who is from New Orleans, and we had a lovely email exchange. Uh, they've been through a hell of a lot in New Orleans, and mm. Alison was kind of filling me in on that. Uh, she says, with Spurs only interested in buying wingers, could there be <laughs> hope for another winger fullback conversion? I wonder specifically about Jack Clark. Perhaps this is too progressive for what we know of Jose, but could there be an option of two attacking fullbacks in Sessignon and Clark, as well as two defensive fullbacks in Sirkin and Tanganga? I thought that was really interesting. I, I don't know what you know of Clark, Bardi, but what do you think of the potential there? Um, I don't know enough about Jack Clark, to be honest, to comment on that. Okay, fair enough, Nathan. I don't know enough about Jack Clark. I don't think. I don't think. I. I. I don't see. I again. I. I haven't seen a huge amount of him, but I don't really see him as a fullback potential. I think he's. I don't. I think he's. He's that dynamic winger. Um, he's definitely an outside winger, and and, and that's sort of a bit of a, a gradually outdated thing. And a lot of the outside wingers are becoming fullbacks, but I just don't think that yeah. he's a candidate for that. I think he's. Um, like he's fast in straight lines. Maybe and he's he's going to be slow to turn back, sort of thing. Um, I don't know. I I can't rule it out because again I haven't seen enough of him, but I, that doesn't feel right for me. Uh, mm. Whereas I mean I guess you can you could argue that Sessegnon is a winger being reconverted back to a fullback, so there's there's movement there. And then yeah, definitely Jedson. I I like him as as a right back. 
you might get to see him as a right back, I guess, in our next game if um, Aurier is over in France sorting out family affairs. Would be understandable. I think yeah. I think we'll pop Tanganga was on the bench on Sunday. I think we'll probably uh, see yes. we'll see yes, Tanganga right. back at right back. You're right. Yeah, I I, I like the idea of um, of Clark moving back to full back, but I I don't know. I, the only reason I like it is because I think it's the only way he gets minutes right now. But I actually think Clark just needs to go on loan to a League yes. One club next year and then go from there and just just play forty games and see what happens. I do, I really like Clark. It's such a shame that he's wasted the season uh, because he's got real potential. Um, and and Spurs do have a history of uh, of wide players being converted to fullbacks. Not for us, but Ryan Fredericks is now a West Ham right back. He was a winger, always a right winger throughout his academy time at Spurs. Um, in some ways, similar to to Clark, kind of outside winger, very direct, gets your head down, get to the byline, make something happen in the final third. Uh, Danny Rose, another one who was a, a who played much further forward. Sometimes central yeah. midfield, sometimes attacking midfield, sometimes left wing. Then became a, a left back. So yeah, we've we've seen it happen before. It's not com- it's not completely unthinkable. Uh, but like I said, I think we just need to see what Clark becomes after a year out on loan. Uh, so Matthew Court, he says, I listened to Damien Hughes's great lecture on Barcelona's commitment culture. Uh, thanks for the recommendation. Hugh says Barca's culture was set by ownership, not management. Do you think Spurs have a culture? And if so, who's setting it? I thought that was a really, really interesting question. What do you think, Bardi? Because Levy's gone back and forth and back and forth on the type of manager that he gets in. Do you think we have a, a Spurs culture? No, I, I don't think so. Um, amongst the fans we do, we have this. We have a vision of how football should be played, but I don't think there's been anything set in stone by... We haven't had a we haven't had the figure come in and just kind of cement a legacy or something like a Cruyff, something like this is how we're going to play. This is the model we're going to follow and something and just commit to it. Uh, I think it's very difficult now in in modern football to be able to do that. You can see, take the England national team for example. That one year years ago it was the Spanish model, then it was the German model, then it was the French model. I think it's very difficult to um, it's very difficult to to be able to do that just because people aren't round people don't stay at clubs long enough. So I, I don't think we do have a culture within the club of of how football should be played. But as I said, as I repeat, we do have that amongst our fan base. Mm. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think there are some sort of discernible traits that we work within. So I mean, I'm thinking if if you think on a football manager when you get set your kind of. Uh, expectations by by the chairman and you have to sign players under 23 and only give a maximum one-year contract mm. to players over 31 i think those are things we've seen at spurs generally with a, a few exceptions other than that i haven't seen like a hugely consistent culture under our owners what do you think nathan i mean yeah the the culture at spurs is like uh asset value versus amortization over a five-year yeah. rolling <laughs> like so and that and that like lends itself to buying younger players, uh, yeah. selling older players. It lends itself to mm. development through the academy. Um, it, yeah, it, it lends itself to sort of a, a more aggressive, adventurous football and like gradual evolution up the table. But it's not if we could achieve those things playing counter-attack football. I, although I guess there's like there's an element of like Spurs as a product to sell to foreign audiences. And I think maybe, um, maybe I'm wrong on that as well because I think a lot of people 
will just follow a side who wins regardless of the football they play. I don't know. I do th- I do think there was at least a while, especially when we were pushing in America. We do still now, but we were more we were bigger on uh two, three, four, five, six years ago, where the product of Spurs was like, Hey, you're American and you want to get into soccer, don't just follow the obvious best teams. Pretend you're a bit of a cool hipster and follow the team who are finishing fifth because they're a bit more you know, outsider, less obvious. And also we're playing exciting Mm. football with exciting players. And I think if that's a product to sell to foreign audiences, that also lends itself a bit to attacking football. But again, not in a way that is fixed. Yeah, I think the... Sorry, Windows. I think maybe the closest we've got to installing a culture is something... It just reminded me that you wrote for the Fighting Cock with Manoy's... Was it Manoy's... Money, yeah. sorry, at Spurs, where they try to implement a way of training academy products and moving it through the system that way. Maybe that, maybe that's the closest we've got to having somebody with that kind of influence at the club. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. To be honest, you could be right. I think it's it's much easier to sort of have a a culture when you've got a manager that has a very clear philosophy, isn't it? It, it almost becomes a, a club culture just through virtue of the fact that that manager is a like Pochettino is a, a proper force of nature, very charismatic man, uh, very like talkative about his philosophy. You know, we had these young players who are mostly really nice people and good people. He saw a lot of value in players not just being good players but decent human beings except when they were asked to beat up the opposition which was regularly <laughs> um and and we kind of played this pressing style for his first couple of years of course that did change over time um and yeah like nathan says that is very sellable particularly if you've got like a striker who's come through your youth system and you can say hey look we've got one of our own this is a thing at spurs they're some of our own players we've got winks as well yeah like you said that is that becomes a very saleable product i I don't see that like as a lasting thing within the club i think that's that's just going to change manager to manager depending on choices that the managers make well i think fair to him like levy's always been good at giving the managers a a fair amount of power in in that respect like he's not asked any of them to fit into a particular way of working i think um i think pochettino could have done this had he been had he been more um, had he had more faith in the youth players later on in his career if um, mm. had he pushed through Onoma properly had he pushed through Carl Walker Peters properly had he looked after nurtured Edwards and and skip a little bit more maybe there might have been something that could have been created and there could have been a clear way of playing and this is your this is your way from the youth team into the first team instead of um, using Sissoko instead of using Onoma and that kind of stuff and using Aurier instead of giving Carl Walker Peters minutes perhaps there was an opportunity missed there to really embed a culture which then the next manager could take on but um, yeah we, we kind of he missed that opportunity Man, I'd love to ask him about that. I I would really love to find out if he has kind of regrets about any of those decisions. It would be so interesting. Particularly as his son's in the academy as well, you know. It seems so obvious, but... Uh, This is an interesting one from John Hayden. He says, I've been thinking a lot about how we could have signed Bruno Fernandes last summer, especially with him lighting it up after the restart and settling into the Premier League so quickly. Would he have fit into our team or is it a waste of time being upset about this missed opportunity? What do you think, Nathan? Would Fernandez have slotted in? Probably to to an extent, certainly. Uh, my friend Tiago made the point that like um, one of the things that's worked out for Fernandez is that he was sort of 
the star in a team who, who were a mess in Portugal and he's come to England and is the star of a team who were a mess and that sort of like that lack of organization like we were talking earlier sort of favored him and maybe that is also the case now <laughs> with us um but sure. I I think the the better route is 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 the one we took where we look to move away from that towards structure and for that reason it was a matter of Fernandez or Lo Celso. I think we went with the one that in the end we were able to get cheaper between the two. Um, but I also think we all, we landed the one who made more sense for us. Now, Lo Celso isn't going to um, you know, be the Premier League player of the season like Fernandez might. Um, he isn't going to be quite the headline grabber that Fernandez is, especially obviously now that he's at United. But I just think he's a better fit for us. If we could have got both, great, sure. But again, that's not the area. We had a huge, huge problem to solve, which was Ericsson was going to leave and we knew it. What we did is we bought Lo Celso. And we also bought Ndombele, who was more of a replacement for Dembele. But if you can sort of split between the two, he's if he's a more creative passing version of Dembele, then, then you're, you're taking some of the pressure off Lo Celso there. Whatever. I think between those two players, we have enough creativity. And we lost a huge man in Ericsson. But he's one of the rare cases over the last few years where we've replaced a very good talent very well. So I'm not too upset about how well Bruno Fernandes is doing at United at the moment. We have much bigger issues. Bruno just would give us more weight into that area of the pitch where, again, we're strong, but we're not accessing, we're not organising well enough. So give me a defensive midfielder and give me a right back going for Bruno every day. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think he would, I think Fernandes would have been really, really good at Spurs, but like you say, it's not the skill set we needed at the time. Uh, part of me thinks you can never turn down players that are that good. Like you just find sure. a way to make them fit. Um, but then we've got Ndombele on the bench. Right now. <laughs> so, so <laughs> uh, question from Todd from LA. He says, I think the real root of our club's current problem is the fact that we don't have a sporting director, a football person with a vision and a plan to deliver that vision. I mean, it's kind of similar to what we were just saying about the, the culture and the ideas, but um, what do you think, Bardi? Yeah, I, I kind of, we've already touched upon this. I, I do think Tottenham's um, flip-flopping from one type of manager to the other manager has had a, probably has had a long-term impact on our club. Um, some of the managers that have worked out have been when we've kind of gone totally the opposite way from a previous mistake which um, we have to wait and see whether it works this time, whether uh, Mourinho does become a bit of a Harry Redknapp. Mm. And one more before we sign off. This one is from Joe Gilby. He says, in light of Liverpool's amazing purchase of Andy Robertson, I was wondering who would you pinch from the potential relegation team this summer? He likes John McGinn and Mikel Antonio as a cane backup. Uh, he says, who takes your fancy? So at the moment, the bottom three are Norwich, Aston Villa and Bournemouth. Watford and West Ham are just above them. Um, I guess for me, the part of the problem is with those teams is that the only players that I think I'd like are attacking yep. midfield players, and we're kind of well-stocked for those. So Norwich, Buendia, Villa, Grealish and McGinn, Bournemouth, David Brooks. There aren't too many other players from those that I would take. Bardi, any ideas? Um, Jefferson Lerma is a proper kind of thug mm. who could kick people around the pitch and... Might do something for us, but yeah, as you said, there's um, yeah, there's not much, there's not much going on there in in the positions we need. I'm not really, I'm not really sold on Max Aaron's, and yeah, but I would, I would still quite happily take Grealish all day. Nathan, what do you think? Grealish is so good, man. Like he's he he's really absurdly good. good. Um, 
So is Buendia, though. Buendia, very good as well. Again, the thing with Grealish is that, like, we got Lo Celso, and, and Grealish and Lo Celso mm. were very, very similar players, I feel. Um, yeah, I mean, Grealish is just too good for the championship, man. But I just... Again, what we need is a number six and an improvement at fullback, really. So Max Aarons is down as a bit of a maybe. But other than that, it's just... Like you said, yeah, these are three teams who their their primary issue is... Well, certainly two teams in Villa and Norwich. Their primary issues are all their talent is at the front of the pitch. And our biggest issue is all our talent is at the front of the pitch. So it just doesn't... Just doesn't work. If 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 we were a rich team with with loads of money to chuck about, then Grealish would be an obvious one. Um, but with a restricted budget, they're just I just don't think that, McGinn as well. Really really good player, but um, just not what we need between those ones. Really really interested to see where they land uh, if Villa go down because like you say, they're both too good for the championship. Um, yeah, Someone's I, gonna I, have I can't see who will buy a them. lot of fun like, with Grealish. Someone's going to really yeah. really benefit. Um, but yeah. I mean, the thing with that, though, is that, like, although you can say that every window, but but the top six sides are always just continuing to load up on attacking talent they don't need. Obviously, Chelsea (laughs) have gone, like, absurd with that, and obviously aren't going to have room for Grealish, but, you know, do do, do Liverpool... I guess Liverpool's an interesting fit, because maybe they see Grealish potentially as an A. Is his defensive work enough? Liverpool's... No? no, Just no? Just straight off no? No. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He would have to play wide for Liverpool. Hmm. Uh, and, and he don't shift. I don't think you shift Mane for enough no, games to to play Greenish. Uh, Is I Silver mean, getting old enough that they? But then they already have backups Foden. in that area. They've already got Foden. I don't know, man. Oh, that's crazy. Maybe maybe there's not going to be a top six purchase of Greenish, but he's a top six player for sure. I think David Silver leaves City at the end of the season. His contract yeah. is his contract is up. I think there might there's there's a scenario where Tottenham sell Ndombele and perhaps replace him with Grealish. That is uh, something that could happen. Ooh, don't know, man. Don't know. So he uh, Everton should try and sign Grealish. He would be absolutely brilliant. He would be absolutely brilliant for them. Uh, no, I think he's too good for Everton. Yeah, he's way too. There's there's no point yeah. Grealish having um, given up um, moving away from Villa to, to yeah. give it one go. He, he he stayed with Villa to give it one proper go in the Premier League, and there's no point in him going to Everton. I think if there's a situation where nobody bids for him, they will just start bidding for him because he's too good a player to mm-hmm. to allow. To Maybe stay he in goes abroad. Maybe we use another yeah, young no, English no, talent to, to you know to the Bundesliga. Mm. Yeah, Arsenal should also sign Grealish. By the way, Arsenal shouldn't sign anyone ever again. They should be banned from transfers forever and be left to rot. But yes, you're right. But I wouldn't be surprised if he if he ends Leicester is something that where he might end up. Good shout. Yeah, yeah. But again, they've got Harvey Barnes on that side, who's really (laughs) really good. Yeah, he's he's not Grealish good though. Uh, he's a few years behind in his development, definitely, but he's really good. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like all these teams should sign Green. <laughs> <laughs> he's very good. He's very, very good. As is John McGinn, who's uh, a little bit more underrated, perhaps. Boys, that was a long one, wasn't it? We got through a lot there. But um, a pleasure as always. You've been listening to the Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindner for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindner. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help. Hold up. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.